the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 64, December 1970. When Louis XIV came to the throne, he felt that the monarchy was threatened by France's powerful nobility. One of his central policies thus was to undercut the power of the nobility. He attached the nobility to his court and gave them a great variety of functions which seemed to confer favors on them. As Dr. Wolf remarks, quote, It became important who gave the king his shirt, who held his candle at night, the service of his table, even the bringing of the pierced chair took on solemn overtones, unquote. What Louis did was to separate the, quote, reality and the mystique of power and position, unquote, so that finally, in the next century, the nobility had become of a parasitical class without meaning to the real life of the nation, unquote. John B. Wolfe, Louis XIV, page 270F, New York, W. W. Norton, 1968. From powerful lords who managed vast estates and helped govern France, the nobility was reduced to social butterflies who gambled, danced, and drifted them from one sexual escapade into another. What Louis XIV had done was to destroy the nobility as an upper class and reduce them to a lower class mentality. From being a future-oriented group of leaders whose planning might run counter to the witches of the crown, the nobility was reduced to a group of ineffectual, present-oriented incompetents who were a hindrance to the life of the nation. This process was furthered by two things. First, the association of work with something beneath the dignity of a gentleman, and second, the secularization of society. To consider the first, a gentleman came to mean a man who did not work but lived off an estate. This meant practically that he lived off the past accomplishments and work of his family, and the present work of underlings. This meant that a gentleman was clearly lower class, that is, not future-oriented, Rather, he was intensely present-oriented. Sensitive to matters of dress, appearance, and impressions made on others, the gentleman lived for the moment, and to be heedless of the future was made into a virtue. As early as in the days of Louis XIV, fortunes were gambled away carelessly at the tables of Versailles. Earlier in the Renaissance, Castiglione, had set forth the standard for the courtier, a relativistic standard. The important thing was not a faith, but an impression made on others, not meaning, 
but the impact of selling oneself. Salesmanship on a courtly level. In the 18th century, the expression of this faith was the, quote, dandy, unquote, and in the 20th century, it is the existentialist who has formulated the same faith into a philosophy. Thus, the French novelist Alain Roubaix-Grillet, quote, feels that nothing is so fatal to literature as a concern with saying something, unquote. According to Rob Grillet, quote, the world is neither significant nor absurd. It is quite simply, unquote. Time, December the 2nd, 1966, page 419. This ties in with the second aspect, the secularization of society by humanism. If God is denied, then man lives in a world without meaning, a world without law, without standards, and without purpose and direction. The future offers no grand design unfolded by God. The culmination of humanism is relativism. Since every man is his own God and law, then no one law is truth, since every man is his own private truth and law. The only thing that matters is the moment, since existence is all that man has in a world without meaning. In a relativistic world where absolute standards and law are denied, men look at the world through out-of-focus binoculars. Everything is blurred or unseeable. Relativism destroys vision and standards. It produces a present-oriented, lower-class mind. A lower-class society becomes a political society because the majority of men have become lower-class and are incompetent in the basic task of social planning. The state is given the functions of individuals, and state planning replaces individual and social planning. Where people are unwilling or incapable of planning for the future, this task is handed over to the state. But statist planning is political planning, and is thus present-oriented and lower-class. The purpose of statist planning, whatever its declared goals, is to gain votes and assure political power. The state, therefore, aggravates the already existing evil. It adds to the incompetence of a lower-class people the burden of a radically lower-class national policy. How extensive this deterioration of functioning power is on the status level was indicated by statistics issued by the Vice President Emeritus and former business manager of a Middle Western University, according to which, quote, one dollar of relief to a needy individual through a private volunteer agency costs seven cents. Through a municipal welfare, twenty-seven cents. Through a state welfare agency, one dollar. And through a federal welfare agency, two dollars, unquote. The Review of the News, November 4th, 1970, page 20. Status planning or welfare being always primarily political planning, the political cost is high, whether it be welfare or road construction. The more society is politically governed, the more incompetent it becomes in coping with its problems. The lower class mentality also dominates education, and to the degree that education is state-controlled, to that degree it represents education into a lower class world and mind. The academic community today is an example of the lower class mind. It is relativistic extensional, and politically oriented in its problem-solving. The academic community has steadily withdrawn from the world with contempt. 
All too often, where men cannot compete successfully, there they run down the competition by contempt. The academic community thus approaches the world only with revolutionary contempt and hatred. A century ago, scholars wrote for the world. Thus, the great historians expected to be read by literate men everywhere. Since then, the academician has progressively written for other scholars, not for the public. He has written to gain academic approval, not to apply knowledge to problems. The scholar is usually so busy protecting his statements from possible criticisms by other scholars that all too often he says little or nothing. The Marxists have at least had the courage of their conviction and have sought to be relevant. Much of their influence on students has been due to the fact that they have at least been plain spoken. Education as a whole, however, because it has become relativistic, existentialist, and state-controlled, has been the major means of creating a lower-class society. A society can drift into a lower-class culture and, in pride, maintain that it is on the high road to greatness. Spain gives us a classic example of this. Ferdinand and Isabella united their kingdoms and sought to make Spain, quote, Spanish, unquote, and Catholic. Ferdinand almost certainly was in part Jewish. The, quote, Moors, unquote, were expelled. The number of Muslim conquerors who came to Spain much earlier numbered only 25,000 at the most. By 1311, of the 200,000 Muslims in Grenada, only 500 were of Arabic descent, according to an Arabic document. Powerful Muslim, Jewish, and Christian families regularly intermarried to consolidate their power and alliances. All were equally, quote, Spanish, unquote. But in the name of, quote, purity, unquote, the Moors were expelled. Then the Jews, and finally the Germans, who had helped Charles V bring Spain to greatness. And only, quote, Spaniards, unquote, were left, of supposedly pure blood. The question of pure blood could never be asked of the royal family. In brief, only, quote, gentlemen, unquote, were left. The businessmen and the farmers of caliber had been run out. As the Catholic historian here has pointed out, the results were disastrous. Quote, the Spanish did not cultivate the land. Agriculture in Spanish hands declined catastrophically. Until the 19th century, there was no such thing, strictly speaking, as an economy. In the 14th and 15th century, the Spanish left this to the Germans, the Ravensburg Trading Society, and the Foggers, and then to the Flemish. Later, they had to leave it to the French, the Dutch, the English, and the Americans. The Spanish built cities, monasteries, and palaces as settings in the world theater and as suitable trappings for its world spectacle. Unquote. Frederick here, The Intellectual History of Europe, page 255, Cleveland. World Publishing Company, 1966. Spain lived parasitically off its colonies. Its standards became those of the picaresque novel they produced, the clever opportunist who lives without work. This same prolonged drifting cannot occur now. Every modern country virtually is a modern, quote, Spain, unquote. It is substituting grandiose ideas and plans for production, and the result is a steady decline everywhere into socialism. But socialism is by nature imperialistic. Since socialism cannot produce goods successfully and economically, it must expropriate. 
Expropriation at home is followed by expropriation abroad. The imperialism of the Soviet Union is a necessity. It is its means of gaining fresh capital. As the other powers move deeper into socialism, they too will extend their area of expropriation. Just as the lower class man steals casually to make ends meet, so too does the lower class state. Our answer to this problem cannot be political. That is the lower class answer. This does not mean that we abandon politics, but that we recognize that politics is a reflection of the life of the people. The answer is essentially religious and moral. No election can make men future-oriented. Only a living faith in the sovereign God can do this. A scholar in analyzing the thinking of colonial Americans has remarked on their amazing confidence. Whatever their problems, they were confident that men who moved in obedient faith to the sovereign God would triumph, that neither the hostile forces of nature, Indians, nor a tyranny in England could long survive in a battle with God's free men. Very simply, they believed that victory is built into the universe for God's people. They were thus future-oriented. They built for the future. They kept diaries and records faithfully for unborn generations. Reverend Samuel Hopkins dedicated his, quote, Treatise on the Millennium, unquote, in example on the era of the triumph of the gospel, to the people who should be living then. He expected that the golden era to come not too long after the year 2000. In 1930, the book of Journeyman, Albert J. Knox, said, quote, We have hopefully been trying to live by mechanics alone, the mechanics of pedagogy, of politics, of industry and commerce, and when we find that it cannot be done and that we are making a mess of it, instead of experiencing a change of heart, we bend our wits to devise a change in mechanics, and then another change, and then another, unquote. Men are trying to enter the kingdom of God by manipulation rather than regeneration. Men have moved in fear rather than in faith, and the courage of faith, in Second Peter 2.5, we are told that God, quote, spared not the old world before the flood, but saved Noah, unquote. The word translated, quote, saved, unquote, can be better rendered, quote, guarded, unquote. In the face of all the hostility of that world, we are told that Noah was guarded or preserved because he had been called to a new world and to rebuild in that world, and Noah was faithful to that call. Men who seek to survive are doomed. Their interest is in their own skin, and they are a form of lower-class mentality. Men whose desire is to rethink and to rebuild under God are men geared to life and faithful to the Lord of life. Whatever men may do, God cannot be dislodged from the throne of the universe. If God is our Savior, then He is also our sustainer and vindicator. We can face the future in the confidence of His government, and we must at all times think, act, and rebuild in terms of that certainty. Quote, if God be for us, who can be against us? Unquote. Romans eight thirty one. Calcine Report number sixty five, January nineteen seventy one. A lower class culture is generally politically oriented. Its major concern is with the state, and it sees the state as man's instrument for regaining paradise. The state is given a paternal role 
As father, the state provides cradle to grave security for its children. A status culture is thus a lower-class culture, childish and present-oriented. This does not mean that politics and the state are not important, nor does it mean that we should neglect them. The fact that sound nutrition and good eating habits are important does not mean that we should become gluttons and live to eat. Similarly, the importance of politics by no means can be made a justification for statism. A political society is one in which politics takes precedence over all things and governs all things. This is exactly what Lenin required, declaring, quote, Politics cannot but have precedence over economics. To argue differently means forgetting an ABC of Marxism, unquote. Cited by Lou P.O., Report to the Ninth National Congress of the Communist Party of China. Delivered on April 1st and adopted on April 14, 1969, page 60. Peking, Foreign Language Press, 1969. In a political society, politics governs economics. It also governs education. Just as economics is made to serve political goals, so is education. The school becomes an instrument for the control of the people, or as James G. Carter, co-founder with Horace Mann of Status Education in America, stated it, quote, an engine to sway the public sentiment, the public morals, and the public religion, more powerful than any other in the possession of government, unquote. Carter, Essays Upon Popular Education, page 49F, 1826. C.R.J. Rushdoony, The Messianic Character of American Education. The purpose of controlling education becomes not to further education, but primarily to increase the control by the state over the people. A political society also seeks to control religion, and a major target of dictatorships is always the church, which is either suppressed or controlled. Man's religious independence from man his allegiance to God and his strength from God are challenges to the state's claim to be man's only Lord and Savior. Similarly, the family is controlled and the independence of the godly family is viewed with distrust. A political society inevitably moves towards totalitarianism. Before World War I, an Englishman, A.G. Gartner, in The Pillars of Society, described Theodore Roosevelt as the consummate politician. He quoted Roosevelt as follows, quote, The most successful politician is he who says what everybody is thinking most often and in the loudest voice, unquote. In a godly society, a politician moves in terms of higher law and his conscience with a sense of responsibility to God and to man. In a political society, Roosevelt's definition holds true. The politician is the voice of the crowd. When the United States was founded, its leaders feared the crowd mentality. Thus, Mason, Jefferson, and others feared the growth of cities because they feared a crowd culture, a lower-class society. Others, like Hamilton, felt rightly that cities were not the problem but the minds and hearts of men. As a result, Hamilton began to work towards a Christian constitutionalist party to develop a godly and responsible electorate. His death cut short his efforts. The rise of humanism and the erosion of biblical faith destroyed both upper and middle class culture in city and country alike, 
and the entire country began to develop into a politically oriented society and a lower class culture. Where there is no restraint of a higher law, politics soon becomes the art of people-pleasing. Instead of statementship, politicians manifest only a desire to gain votes by pleasing the crowds. The upper-class mind is future-oriented. It plans practically in terms of long-range goals. The lower-class mind is present-oriented. It thinks primarily in terms of the satisfaction of present needs. Today, we have no lack of intelligent politicians, but they are almost all present-oriented because little else gains votes. Politicians and people, priests, pastors, and teachers are alike present-oriented and lower-class in mentality. The socialite and the welfare recipient differ only in wealth. They are alike in thinking essentially of today as the truly lower-class people they are. A lower-class society is like a ship without a rudder, being geared only to the existentialist moment. It is driven by every wind. It does not give direction to life, but takes direction from the weather. As a result, it is catastrophe-bound. The lower-class mind, moreover, does more than drift into catastrophe. It provokes and invites disaster. The man who plans practically with religious vision and hard-headed economic knowledge knows that it takes time and work to realize a dream. The lower-class mind, being politically oriented, despises both time and work. If it wants something, it seeks to realize its utopia by political action. The only major result of such political action is more taxes. The result? Disillusionment and despair, and then a revolutionary rage. If the television set does not work, kick or smash it. If the political order does not produce on demand, burn and destroy it. If the old order is destroyed, then miraculously a new paradise will emerge from the ruins. The lower class mind, the political mentality, is a gambler's mind. The key to the future lies in a gambler's hope, a miraculous break which will reward the gambler. Work is thus avoided to play the political slot machine. Let us finance John Doe who will save our country if elected. The fact that John Jones, John Johnson, and every other financed hope has failed them does not register with them. Can a lower-class electorate elect anyone but a lower-class politician? But the gambler does not believe in logic or the odds. His hope is in miracles, godless miracles. Thus he pins his hope come every election on another great, quote, white hope, unquote. Feeling and fantasy begin to govern such a nation. To be reasonable is regarded as the epitome of sterility and reaction. People begin to cultivate experience for experience's sake. Perversions, pornography, new taste sensations, more and more flamboyant dress, and emphasis on the perpetually new, these and like emphases mark the lust for experience, for satiation in the terms of the present. A present-oriented people grows heedless of the consequences. We are safe today. Why worry about national defense tomorrow? We eat today. Why bother about planning ahead? A present-oriented economy is thus of necessity inflationary. It burns up past, present, and future assets in terms of its demands now. 
One of the chronic problems of mankind is that it has usually been dominated by a lower class mentality, whether ruled by kings, oligarchs, dictators, or democrats. The lower class mind is ultimately the mind of Satan, a denial of causality, a declaration that man is his own god, and an insistence on the existential moment. An upper class society can only develop where a truly biblical faith governs men, where the absolute lordship and saving power of the triune God is recognized and His sovereign law acknowledged. Where there is no respect for, obedience to, and delight in God's higher law, there can be no upper class mind or vision. Where men acknowledge with pleasure what the world of men, of physics, economics, biology, politics, and all things else are governed by God's law. There, men will be future-oriented and will be upper and or middle class in outlook. The significance of God's absolute law is that it requires a future orientation. Law speaks of consequences, of penalties, of rewards for obedience, of life and death, success and failure. Because law indicates causality, it requires that men who respect law analyze cause and effect and be governed by that knowledge. To reject law is to reject the past and the future. A purely experiential religion thus stresses the mystical or emotional feelings of the moment. It derides time and history. And experiential economics is only or largely concerned with needs, not with the practical matters of supply and demand. The politics of the new left and of the old left is an ugly expression of romanticism and the romantic depreciation and denial of time, history, and above all, law in favor of experience and the moment. Preaching in the church has long been aimed largely at generating experience, too little towards teaching God's law. Many evangelicals cite Joseph A. Seiss as their mentor, but Seiss in his lectures of 1859 declared there could be no preaching of grace without a teaching also of the law. The goal of Christian redemption and action he held is, quote, restoration, unquote. Joseph A. Seiss, Holy Types, or the Gospel in Leviticus. Restoration or reconstruction requires the law, for law is the instrument in every area of planning for the future practically. We cannot expect to live long by taking poison, nor to prosper economically by denying sound economics. The redeemed man therefore plans to structure his life and future and that of his society by means of God's law. Earl Warren recently called for a, quote, new civilization, unquote. He asked for a new law order in which men, quote, become truly partners in a new creation, creation of a new heaven and a new earth, better than any which preceded it, unquote. Earl Warren asked new civilization, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, Monday, December 14, 1970, page A10. Warren has for years worked to use the courts to further that, quote, new civilization, unquote, of humanism. Warren's new heaven looks unfortunately more and more like the old hell. The most beautiful cathedrals and buildings always represent not only beauty, but planning, work, and dedication. To expect a happy future by electing John Doe is to court disaster, a habit with the lower class political mind. To work slowly, 
patiently and under law to establish godly order and justice to maintain and develop all things under law and with patience is to assure not paradise today or tomorrow but progress steadily towards a world under God's law. This our purpose. Is it yours? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts. 
where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.